This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is psychiatrist Julie Holland. She has a private practice in New York City and is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller Moody Bitches and a memoir, Weekends at Bellevue. For decades, She's been researching the use of psychedelics to treat mental health issues with a particular focus on using MDMA and cannabis to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Many people are struggling with their mental health in this long period of social distancing. But Holland says even before the trauma this pandemic has caused, we were not doing that well mentally. I've been doing phone sessions uh, from up here in Dutchess County um, and some of my patients are still in the city, but a lot of my patients have sort of flown the coop to uh, places where there's a lower density of people, but importantly, places where there's more nature mm -hmm. and they're getting outside, um, they're getting more sun, more nature. And that, I think, for me, it's been a real bomb. And one of the things that's helped me feel balanced or sane, you know, in a good antidote sort of to how toxic the news is and everything that's happening is if I go out into the woods or the swamp or the lake, I really feel much, much calmer. You know, we can discuss what the snapshot is and what the health of the country is and beyond during the COVID, but to whatever extent you're willing to venture an opinion, what was the mental health of the country like prior to the COVID? Oh, yes. Well, you know, we actually had a couple of big epidemics before this pandemic, right? We had the overdose epidemic. We had more and more people uh, not only dying of opiate overdoses or accidental overdoses, but also more people drinking themselves to death. Right. And we also had uh, what was called the epidemic of loneliness, where we had more and more people living alone. Everybody had gotten into their own little pod even prior to this pandemic, but we were not happier because of it. I mean, all the isolation, people felt very lonely, which makes people feel both depressed and anxious. I would love to talk more about why social isolation makes us so anxious. You point out that there are strains in our society 
beyond the COVID, that predate the COVID. Right. And I want to get to later on when people are isolated, COVID or no, and when people are feeling an abundance of distress, are the cures health care, guaranteed income, ways to address I mean, it seems that people are lonely. They yes. can't afford health care. Right. They can't afford food. They don't have a Definitely. job. There's a right. constant fear of the future. Right. So it's impossible for me to talk about depression, anxiety without talking about politics and health policy and social policy. They're so intertwined. And you were asking, you know, before the pandemic, how were we doing? And I was saying we really weren't doing very well. You know, whenever there's sort of gross inequality, a lot of people aren't going to do well. And it's not just that they have more physical problems, but they have more mental health problems. And addiction is a sign of unrest and unwellness. It's not really a thing in and of itself. It's a symptom of something bigger. So the fact that we had more and more people addicted to opiates and, and overdosing, I mean, there was a glut and there, you know, there was a lot of money being made in making the drug and distributing the drug. But, you know, uh, Gabor Mate says this great thing, which is don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. We were in pain. People were in pain before the pandemic. You know, 9-11 was very tough on, on the inhabitants of New York City, and people got very anxious and started paying more attention to political issues. And then honestly, you know, after Donald got elected, you know, everybody in the town who knew him and knew who he was and what he was made of, there was a lot of despair and, and, and anxiety. And, you know, the type of people who come to see a private psychiatrist, I think, tend to lean left, honestly. So I definitely have a biased sample. But my patients were really not only afraid for the country and for our democracy, but also for the planet. You know, there's this sort of background app that's always running, whether we know it or not, which is that we are in sort of mourning for what's happening to the planet. And there's a deep level of despair. And the more disconnected we are from ourselves, from our friends, from each other, from the planet, the worse we feel, the more depressed we are, the more anxious we are. So it's been going on. And I would add to that, we're moving further and further and further away from a connection between the will of the people and what the government's going to do. Right. The government operates completely independent of the will of the people. Right. And they, they do whatever they want to do. They just ignore what mainstream thought is about. But the end result for we, the people, is that we get despairing and depressed because we're powerless, right? It doesn't matter what, what saying, we want, yeah. right? I mean, uh, you know, the popular vote doesn't matter. This sense of powerlessness is a setup for depression. Right. This is your fifth book. When a book like this comes along, what's that process like? How did this book start to germinate with you? This book started to germinate while I was stand-up paddling on a lake, and <laughs> there was mist. There was all this mist coming out of the lake, and I wanted to be in the mist. I wanted to be enveloped in the mist, and I was paddling out to where the mist was. But where, wherever I went, it seemed like the mist wasn't there anymore, and it was somewhere else. And I would paddle somewhere else where it looked like the mist was thick, and then it wasn't there. And the thing I finally realized is you're in the mist. The mist is all around you. It's just that because of the light, you can't see it but it's there. And it was, you know, the sort of epiphany to me that, you know, we're always chasing for things. And really the things that we want, they're really right, right in our backyard. And, you know, while that ended up not being the main message of good chemistry, it is definitely a message for me now and for my patients now that, you know, a lot of people were spinning their wheels and running around. And now that they're sort of stuck in place, it turns out that they do have a lot of things that they need. And that it's been good to sort of hunker down and, and go inward or be with family. You know, it's a cocooning period. 
A very long one. Yeah. In the beginning, everybody was like, if I just knew when this would end, I would be okay. You know, if I knew it was just for the summer or, you know, I mean, when it started, it was like, when if I knew it was just April, right? But that was a big deal uh, for the first few months with my patients was just this idea that they needed to be able to encapsulate it. You know, if it could be compartmentalized, then they could deal with it. But this idea that you don't know how long it's going to go on. The thing, obviously, my concern is about my children. I mean, my children, I want their social skills to mature and I want them and they're growing so quickly. My daughter, who's seven now, I mean, she's like Lillian Hellman, you know, the stuff that comes out of her mouth now, which is kind of <laughs> amazing. She's so sharp and so clever. And so yeah. and I want I don't want their development, which prior to this, we were kind of thrilled by. And I'm just really just shattered and I'm in a lot of pain and I'm suffering about how, although there's some beautiful unintended consequences where they found each other and they only have each other. So the bonding and the relationships between them have become so profound. But my kids, like when you have a five-year-old boy turn to you the other, and he goes, I miss New York. It's hard. You know, he said, I miss yeah. New York. I, I, I thought to myself, you know, it sounds like Steve Rubell in prison. You know what I mean? I miss <laughs> New York. I miss Studio 54. You know, my son's five. And right. he's like, I miss you. I'm going, oh right. my God, this is like tore me apart. Tore yeah. me apart. You know, in my dealing with my patients, sometimes I'm talking to a parent who's very worried about their kid and whether their kid's going to go in or, or go virtually. Um, I also have some patients who are teachers who are really worried about the kids. And, and, you know, everybody has a different opinion about what should happen. Everybody has the same fears. Everybody wants what's best for the kids. But it really is a no-win situation. You know, it's just like everybody gets the misery spread sort of thing. Nobody really gets exactly what they want. You know, certainly uh, with hybrid, it's for my teachers, it's like the worst of both worlds. But the thing about our kids is, you know, we know what they're missing. You know, uh, my son didn't get to be a CIT at camp or, uh, you know, didn't get to play drums in the in the high school musical or somebody didn't get to go to the prom. Like we know what those things are and we know what they're missing. But the kids themselves who haven't they don't know what they're missing. They haven't gone through it. I think it's actually easier on them. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy on the kids. I know, and more kids are being diagnosed with anxiety and being treated with anti-anxiety meds right now than ever before. So no, it's not easy on them. But sometimes I think that, you know, what we wish for them, it's this extra layer of mourning or anxiety that maybe they don't even really have. I mean, they are more resilient, certainly. I've told this story before, I think, on this podcast, so I'll do the distilled version. But my friend who lived in Italy, he was British originally, and he was there for several years. And he came back, and I said, when you came back after nine years in Italy, what's the changes you notice? He said, one thing I don't like are these applications that these people have for dating and meeting. He said, well, the other thing I hate is ways, <laughs> because sometimes getting lost is the greatest thing that could happen to you. You might get lost and go somewhere to get directions. And when you go to the gas station, you meet your wife at the cash <laughs> register. Right, exactly. And he said, we've taken all the serendipity out of, out of the world. Now, it's do you true. find that people are leaning on apps, devices, yeah. all this kind of stuff, social media more than ever now? Yeah. You know, when, when I wrote Good Chemistry, it was before COVID, but I was already saying, you know, put down your phone. You have to go out and see people in real space. First of all, 
you know, anybody's profile picture, like maybe it's them, maybe it's them on their best day, or maybe it's some Photoshop. It could 20 years ago. <laughs> not even be them. I mean, you just, you just don't know. And also right. it's not, you know, how tall somebody is or how they look three-dimensionally. It's really is also how people smell. And this is something I explained in Modi Bitches that we actually mate to some degree, you know, pheromone detection is a real thing. And it helps us figure out not only whether we like the way someone smells, but whether they would be a good physiological match for us on a genetic level. Right. You know, if you're immune to five things and somebody else is immune to five things, if you have a kid, it's possible that kid will be immune to all 10 things. So you want somebody who's a little bit genetically dissimilar to you. And one of the ways that the body figures that out for mating is through smell. So, you know, until there's like a scratch and sniff app, uh, I think that people are going to have to really you know, it's good to get together before, you know, I just tell people to, I mean, before COVID, I was like, just, you know, meet for a coffee, whatever, but you can get so delusional about who you're texting or, you know, if they happen to spell the way that you think, you know, if you care about spelling or, uh, you know, it's political, but like, yeah. you know, they, you really, it's not just about how they spell. And it is, you know, there are such things as like auras and energies and, you know, souls and spiritual things like that. And, you know, I know psychiatrists aren't supposed to say, any of those words, but I think they're real. And I think that, you know, intuition is a real thing. You know, your gut reaction to somebody, you're not going to get, you're just going to project all of your own things onto something because you don't have enough information. Back to the book, which is that, so the mist is everywhere and you're paddling yourself toward the mist and it's there. But what did you want to cover in this book? What did you want? What, what experience you want people to have when they read the book? Well, the book is really about um, how important it is for us to connect and sort of the physical aspects of connection, the physiology, why our bodies are designed so that if we feel connected, we are soothed. And if we feel disconnected, we get kind of agitated and anxious or depressed. So it's about these very basic ideas of connecting with the self, being in your body, being present in the moment, right? So the way good chemistry is set up, the first chapter is about connection with the self. The second chapter is about connecting with another person and all about pheromones and sex and orgasm and all that fun stuff. The third chapter is about family and how those connections work from a physiological point of view, right? So I start talking a lot about oxytocin, which is a hormone that's involved in pregnancy, nursing, delivery, and again, and it's very high oxytocin state for orgasm. Then after self, couple, family, there's a chapter in society where I talk about how communities connect and what the physiology is of that and how oxytocin plays a role in us versus them, right? If you think, oh, you're on my, you know, you're in my tribe, you're my people, but that guy over there, you know, he's them. That's an oxytocin effect also. Then there's a chapter on connecting with nature and about uh, sort of uh, ecological activism versus this, you know, feeling despair, you know, that action will help you feel better. Plus it's better for the planet. Then the last chapter is about connecting with the cosmos, or perhaps if you're fortunate enough to have had a psychedelic experience and you've had a peak experience, you have this sense of everything is connected. You know, it all makes sense. It's all connected. And I'm part of that. And that is a peak mystical experience. It is also a high oxytocin experience. So the book is about oxytocin as sort of the the hormone or the neurotransmitter that underlies all these feelings of connection. They make us feel safe, like we belong. And oxytocin is an antidepressant. It can be used to treat drug addiction. And it, uh, coincidentally, there are some drugs that make you feel safe and like you belong. And that's one of the reasons why we use them. 
psychiatrist Julie Holland. If it's connection you're seeking, subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If Dr. Holland's research into psychedelics to treat mental illness has piqued your interest, be sure to check out the Here's the Thing archives and my conversation with author Michael Pollan. I started looking at that really interesting question is, why as a species do we want to change our consciousness? I mean, it's not adaptive, right? It puts you at all sorts of risk. But we have this desire. And in fact, many animals have it too, which is kind of a mystery. Which, which animals have a desire to? Elephants love to get drunk. And you can imagine how much it takes. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Michael Pollan at heresthething.org. After the break, psychiatrist Julie Holland explains why she's dedicated her life to understanding how our brains are wired. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, Head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Dr. Julie Holland says she's hearing from a lot of people who are self-medicating their way through the pandemic. I'm 35 years sober in a 12-step program and um, always mindful of, you know, the substitutive nature. You know, what else did I put in there? Food, sex, money, 
power, workaholism, love, addiction, whatever. I'm wondering if you have seen that with your patients as well, where during lockdown, I don't want to use the word abuse, but, uh, you know, medicating themselves with food, pornography, yes. uh, shopping, whatever. You know. <laughs> Definitely. All of it. All of it. Yeah. I At mean, the same time. <laughs> well, you can multitask with, you know, two computers, I guess, in theory. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. You know, we, there are all sorts of ways that people soothe themselves. I think one thing to keep in mind is that the way most of us were taught, the earliest ways we were soothed were orally, right? Uh, somebody stuck a pacifier in your mouth or a bottle, or if you were lucky, you got a nipple and a breast and a person holding you. But still, uh, there were times when that wasn't available. You learned to suck your thumb or bite your nails. You start eating. Maybe if you're a, a woman growing up in the United States of America, whenever you eat, you feel guilty, and then you end up soothing that agitated, guilty state with more food. So the COVID-19, like people gaining 19 pounds during uh, the quarantine, has, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is a real phenomenon for my patients. The quarantine has taken on a life of its own. Right. I definitely have patients who are smoking more pot. Right. Um, you know, I thought it was fascinating that cannabis went from being, you know, schedule one illegal drug to like essential during the pandemic right. that was like okay that's pretty interesting move yeah. and you know the other thing i want to say about the the sort of embarrassment of riches or a lot of uh, abundance um, besides there being a lot of options of cannabis-based medicines is there's something really exciting happening in psychiatry now you know we've had a lot of the same tools for a long time and some things are hard to treat especially post-traumatic stress disorder and what we're seeing now with uh, MDMA-assisted therapy, which is better known as ecstasy or Molly, or psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, is that uh, psychiatry all of a sudden has some new tools at our disposal. Ketamine is another uh, very sort of separate and controversial issue, but at least people are getting used to this idea that they can have some sort of an experience where they can uh, examine themselves more, maybe look at their childhood trauma, uh, process some things, come out of this altered state a little bit better, a little bit less depressed, a little bit less anxious. That's a new paradigm. That's a completely different way of thinking about these drugs. Uh, this idea of psychedelic psychiatry, brand new, pretty exciting. Something, but something you've been in love with for a while. Not new to me. Right. I want to talk about the, your beginnings in terms of that and your beginnings in terms of psychiatry, because you, as a psychiatrist, you're obviously a medical doctor, correct? I am. And you, where did you go to medical school? I went to University of Pennsylvania undergrad. I went to Temple for med school, so I stayed in Philadelphia. And then uh, I went to New York City and I did my psychiatric residency at Mount Sinai Hospital. And then I spent nine years running the psychiatric emergency room every Saturday night and Sunday night, which was kind of a rock and roll psychiatry job. Uh, it was the ER at Bellevue Hospital, the psych ER. So after those nine years, I wrote a book called Weekends at Bellevue about my time there. But because I had grown up in the 70s in a suburb full of interesting drugs to try, and then when I was an undergrad, I started learning about this uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which I was very interested in because... Uh, when I was at Penn, all of a sudden I was reading about and hearing about a new drug. And like, you know, when you're studying psychopharmacology at a, at undergrad and there's a new drug, that's a that's a big summer for you. So uh, I got very interested in MDMA and uh, I wrote a big paper about it because I was I had a summer school class I was taking um, and that turned into the ecstasy book. And that was my first book. 
I assign chapters to every expert um, on every different facet of MDMA. And then a few years later, I ended up doing that with a pop book also. So those are actually two books that I edited. I wrote some of it, but not all of it. I knew I was going to be a psychiatrist from a pretty young, I mean, I knew I wanted to do something with the brain. Well, knowing that psychiatry involves a far greater commitment academically because of the medical degree than of being a psychologist or a social right. worker, something related. What's the impulse to psychiatry in the young woman from your background? Like, when did you know you wanted to do this and put in all that time? I wanted to be a doctor from a pretty young age. I mean, you know, I was definitely the kind of person who played doctor, <laughs> you know, wrapped people up in bandages. I mean, I, I'm, I was a smart kid was very interested in drugs, very interested in the brain. Um, pretty sure I was going to be either like a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or a psychiatrist before I even went to undergrad. Like I chose Penn because they had a major called the biological basis of behavior. It was all about the brain and psychopharm. I had a subscription of psychology today when I was in high school. Like I was one of those kids who just kind of, oh, I like this. And now, you know, what, what did your parents do? My mom was a science teacher and my dad is a structural engineer, very analytical. I was interested in science and I was very analytical and dr- and I grew up in the 70s where just drugs were all around me and I was fascinated that a little piece of paper could make you, you know, see the world in a completely different way. And how would you distinguish for people who don't have that much of an intimacy with certain kinds of pharmaceuticals and a certain kind of drugs. Like for me, when I was growing up and I was in my, uh, you know, riding the range out there uh, in my drug and alcohol phase, uh, you know, cocaine was the king. But for people who don't know about ecstasy and psilocybin, you feel there are benefits to either or both. Why? What do they achieve in terms of therapy? So here's what I would say about MDMA and psilocybin in terms of psychiatry. I mean, first of all, the thing to keep in mind is right now, these are still research chemicals. They're not legal. People can't prescribe them, but they are both going through an FDA approval process so that they will be prescribable in the context of therapy, right? So this is not, you know, buying a tablet of ecstasy or some white powder that somebody tells you is Molly and being on a dance floor and getting overheated or overhydrated. And those things are seriously dangerous. Also, you just don't know what you're getting. This is in the context of that you're lying on a couch with 120 milligrams or maybe even only 80 milligrams, which is pretty low dose of pure MDMA. You're not dancing for hours. You're not overhydrating. So the medical risks in that situation are pretty minimal, which is why the FDA has allowed these studies to go ahead. Right now, there are multi-center trials going on with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions all over America and a few other countries. And psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy research is happening in America and all over Europe. And given to who for what? So for some of the psilocybin studies are for treatment-resistant depression, and some of them are just for regular major depression. The MDMA studies are looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also one MDMA study where they looked at social anxiety in adults on the autistic spectrum. For people who don't know anything about ecstasy or molly or what, you know, this is methylene dioxymethamphetamine, MDMA. So the methamphetamine part may sound familiar to you. It's sort of a, a cousin of speed, but it has a more of a psychedelic component to it. So what you end up with is something that uh, increases your serotonin massively. So you're very relaxed and you feel sort of satiated, like you don't need anything. Mm-hmm. It also increases your dopamine because of the methamphetamine base. So 
you are awake, alert, you have very good recall for the event, you want to talk, you yeah. want to dig, you want to You're connect. focused. But there's one more very important part of MDMA is it increases oxytocin. So you have that sense of safety and connection, like you belong. And so you end up you're with this calm. sort of, you're calm, but you're open, right? Okay. So the openness, <laughs> like open to bonding, open to trusting, open to looking at your shit. You know, it's almost like uh, anesthesia with or without surgery. Like when you go to therapy, you get to a certain point where you're like, oh no, that hurts. That bad stuff happened there. That's too tender. I don't want to talk about it. And the therapist says, okay, maybe next week we will. But then maybe you cancel and you don't see her. You know, it, it's fits and starts. It takes a long time for therapy. This is one or two sessions where you feel comfortable enough and trusting enough, but awake and alert enough that you can really do some digging. So it is like a catalyst for therapy. So that's MDMA. And psilocybin is different. It's something really different. It's hallucinogenic. Right. Well, right. So it's you, you have a mystical psychedelic experience. Maybe you're in a void, <laughs> which is scary. Maybe you are in that place where I said, like, where you feel like everything is connected and you're bathed with love. But what happens reliably in people when you give them psilocybin is you can induce a mystical experience. And when you have that sense of everything is connected and love is the answer that when you have that sort of big experience, it can lead to a lot of behavioral changes. And also there's something called neuroplasticity, which is the brain rewiring itself. Mm -hmm. I'm up for that. I need that. Right. So there's some psychedelics that cause neurons to grow or synapses to grow. You get neurogenesis or synaptogenesis. This means you're getting new brain cells, new connections. So not uh, the frying pan and the egg that we were exposed to in the 80s. Like this is, you know, this is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. It really, for these particular drugs, it is quite the opposite where you've got new brain cells. It's not killing brain cells. And you've got new connections, a little bit of rewiring. But do you do some predictive kind of work? Like, for example, you say to me, hallucinogenics like psilocybin. And I think to myself, I'm sitting on my couch and I take this pill. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm paddleboarding into the mist on a lake in upstate New York <laughs> and I haven't left my couch. Right. Do you do, you, do, you, do you do predictive things with them before you give them the drug? No. Because some people might have a negative reaction to it. Not, okay, so, quite a, so the most important thing I can tell you is that because this is just research now, people are screened like you wouldn't believe. Right. Very heavily screened, right? So if you have a history of psychosis, if right. you have a family history of psychosis, you're not going to be on that couch. Right. But, you know, I actually don't say hallucinogen because... It's it's not like you see pink elephants that aren't there. I mean, you right. know, with with psilocy, I mean, you may have visions, but you kind of know they're visions. You know, you don't start interacting with things that aren't there. But they're mind manifesting medicines. They're consciousness medicines, and I would say, Alec, that these are disruptive medicines in psychiatry. This is a disruptive paradigm. Making therapy go deeper and faster, and getting people to turn away from instead of taking a daily dose of antidepressants or, or anti anxiety meds, they are having single sessions or maybe two or three sessions over half a year or a year, but they don't need the daily dose afterwards. And in the MDMA PTSD studies, they're not meeting criteria for PTSD at the end of the study. When did you ascertain that you had developed the ability to know when you were taking drugs and you were self-medicating in a recreational way and when you were taking drugs and it was part of your scientific research? Meaning, when did you uh, sidestep the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the right. Stevensonian uh, chapter of your life there? 
Well, I would say for many people who use drugs, it is a daily calibration and a daily question and an important question to be conscious of what is your relationship with this drug? When are you using it? How are you using it? Why are you using it? Is it interfering with other things that need to happen? But, you know, I think these are hard questions. Did you come to that point yourself when you were younger? Where you said there are things you were doing that, that you thought you thought to yourself, this isn't helping me. Right. Sure. I mean, I, I smoked cigarettes for years and years and years before stopping. And that was something, I'm a singer, so I knew that that was just stupid to do. Um, but it was really hard. And I quit cigarettes twice for two years and started up again twice. And I was amazed. Um, I knew I could quit, so I knew I could start up again. And the kind of rationalizations you How make. How old were you when you started up again? I know you grew up with brothers. I grew up with sisters, but I'm I'm the youngest of three. And, you know, I was, I wanted to do what their friends were doing. So when I was eight, I had my first beer. When I was 10, I had my first cigarette. When I was 12, I had my first cannabis. And then when I was 14, I had my first psychedelic. So very young, yes, precocious, but always taking notes, right. learn, learning, going to the library. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. You want to learn something, you had an encyclopedia or you asked your mom to drive you to the library. But I would do like Anytime I had to do a report, you know, I would be doing it on the brain or on the so drugs. The, but, the, but the smoking thing was the thing you did when you were very young. It wasn't like five years ago. No, and, right, and your husband right. catches you in the, in the in the garage smoking out there in the no, countryside. I mean, yeah. thank goodness. I quit smoking right before I met Jeremy. And it's a good thing I did because I don't think he would have spoken to me if I had a cigarette in my hand. So right. I quit when I was 29. But I smoked you know, steady from like 15 to 29 and not so much steady from 10 to 15, but still I would like bum cigarettes from people. And it was like, oh, look at this cute little kid bumming a cigarette. That's so cute. Yeah. I mean, I've got a handful of friends who are formally getting divorced. Now, of course, the groundwork was laid prior to the COVID. Yes. But the COVID has certainly pushed everybody over the edge. They filed for divorce. They're getting divorced. Not a discussion anymore. They've moved on. I was going to mention before when I said that people are falling back on and relying on different things to medicate themselves like food and, and media and social media and TV watching and pornography. I thought, yes. are you in a house and you're just as likely, maybe not more likely, but just as likely to go in the bathroom with a computer and have online sex you know, and watch porn than to actually have sex with your partner in your house because <laughs> the two of you are so sick of each other. <laughs> Like, like normally, is there, is there like a spike in the birth rate right. after a lockdown? And are we not right. going to see the spike in the birth rate from this? Because everybody's right. in the bathroom doing their own thing now. Yeah. Rather well, than connecting with that person. A couple things there. I mean, you know, I actually, I, I wrote about uh, masturbating to porn quite a bit in Moody Bitches because, you know, when you have an orgasm, you have an increase in oxytocin that makes you bond or trust or be open to the person who enabled that orgasm. But if you're doing that with your laptop, are you bonding with your laptop every time? So maybe. But the other thing I will say is that I definitely have patients who have left their husbands or left their partners during these past six months. There's no question that this has been like a crucible where you're like, oh my gosh, we're in the best place we've ever been in or yeah, no, that's over. So um, I, there's not much middle ground here. And when this ends, if it ends, how it ends, there is going to be post-traumatic stress disorder. I think that's pretty clear. You know, we are currently being chronically stressed. And so in theory, once the chronic stress is over, then you have the post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, people who had PTSD from 9-11, it was a terrible day in New York City, but it was one day and then it was over. 
psychiatrist Julie Holland. When we return, Julie Holland talks about why the pandemic is particularly challenging for already anxious kids. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, Head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. I wanted to understand why someone starts seeing a psychiatrist. So usually if somebody comes to me, it's because they're already in therapy and their therapist is saying, I think you need to talk about medicines. I think medicines would help you. So they've already sort of gone past the threshold. It's not just like people are coming to me and saying, you know, I feel lousy and I don't know why. Although, I mean, back in the 90s, that was the case. The people were just, I don't know what's the matter with me. And I would have to sort of hold their hand and convince them that, you know, maybe they need medicine. I don't have to do any kind of destigmatizing with medicine now. Everybody knows somebody who's taking antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, sleeping pills. They're everywhere, right? They're advertised. Mm. We, you know, we're all sort of soaking in it. So I do think ever since 9-11, I think a lot of people got permission to medicate themselves. So when they come to you, it's beyond talk. So yeah, they're coming because they're wondering if they need medicines. Right. 
They've hit a wall. They need the medicine to get through that wall. They've definitely hit a wall. Or I have people coming to me who've been on medicines for years who want to get off. And that's something that I help people do. And it's really complicated to get off antidepressants when you've been on them for decades, which unfortunately happens a lot. You know, these meds were really only studied to be used for six months or maybe 12 months. And in some people, you have to take them long term. But almost everybody, they get on them and they stay on them because they do make it easier. You know, what, what I talk about in good chemistry is they don't necessarily give you more connections in your life. They just make you not mind that you're disconnected. That's my, fr- my, my friend said that once. He said, I took drugs because I wanted to care less about my problems. He said, and I stopped day taking drugs because I wanted to care again. Right. I wanted to care again. And he said, and that, that was the mechanism by which I could then move forward and start to care about what's happening to me, my loved ones, my children. Right. And then, and if you care, you can make changes. Right. And, you know, I definitely want to say for the 12 step programs that there is a lot of love in those rooms and there's a lot of connection in those rooms. And you walk in, if it's your home meeting and you're going again and again, there is that sense of belonging and safety and all of those things, feeling connected, feeling safe, feeling like you belong to something bigger than you. Those are high oxytocin states that get you out of fight or flight and into this whole other paradigm for your body, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. right? So it's the opposite of the sympathetic nervous mm-hmm. system. And good chemistry talks a lot about how to get yourself out of fight or flight and over into what you could call rest and digest or connect and protect or tend and befriend. But it's it's the things that aren't fighting and running away. It's things like staying and negotiating and cooperating and collaborating. You know, all those things can't happen when we're in fight or flight. And if we're being traumatized and if we're afraid of contagion and if we have a sense of powerlessness, we are all going to be in fight or flight way too much of the time. Are you concerned? I mean... Our research, uh, such as it is, you know, my show, our producers that anti-anxiety prescriptions for kids have gone up significantly during the COVID. Does that concern you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. First of all, you know, over-pathologizing women and children is, is really a reflection of the sort of patriarchal structure in medicine. But we you know, some people get sort of narcissistic about their kids and their kids are like extensions of themselves, you know, and there is a little bit of a sort of a niche population in New York City where it's almost like you take pride if your kid is going to a psychiatrist or your kid's in therapy or your kid has like special classes or something. So here's the thing. Our culture is pretty toxic right now and very anxiety producing right now. And it is normal to be anxious. Fear of contagion is a real thing and it is normal to be afraid that you're going to get sick or that your parents are going to get sick or that your grandparents are going to die. That's all normal anxiety. And then it's normal to be anxious if you don't know what's going to happen next month or next year or whether you're going to be in class or at home, you know, or whether you're going to be allowed to touch your friends or hug your friends or play sports. I mean, there's so many reasons we have right now for kids being anxious. All the rules have changed, right? That everything they used to be able to do, they can't do anymore. And also wearing masks, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't wear masks. We should all wear masks. But, you know, it would be great is if we had clear masks because interpreting social cues, if we could interpret social cues, you know, now with a mask, you can't tell if someone's smirking at you or smiling or yawning, right? And so, and our brains, because back when we were cave people, if you got kicked out of the group, you were going to get picked off the herd, you were going to die, or no one was going to share their food with you, or no one was going to help you build a structure. You know, if you weren't in the club and in the tribe and you got 
separated or ostracized, you were going to die. And so we still, on a very deep level, have that kind of reaction. Am I safe? Am I in the group? Am I okay? So when you're on a Zoom meeting and there's like eight people, your brain is scanning, scanning all the time to make sure that everybody's okay with you. And if it's a herky-jerky connection or you can't see their face or their camera's off, that's missing data that your brain is trying to, you know, fill in. So that will make us anxious. So these kids that are on Zoom calls or the kids that can play with their friends, but they can't really play the way they used to play. And don't, don't go run to Johnny. You know, Johnny's dad works in the emergency room. Don't stand back. Yes, you know, like yes. The rules keep yeah. changing. The social rules are changing and they, and they can't be held and comforted by so many people. Now it's just maybe your parents and that's it. I have always viewed myself that I've typically been for most of my life, a person that functioned under my trust is yours to lose. When I met people, I was very open, regardless of what I did for a living. And now with this, uh, what's going on in the world, as much as anything in combination with the COVID, it's made me think, you know, my trust is yours to gain. I'm going to go out in the world now filled with suspicions. I'm wondering, do you find that this suspicion this neurosis about going back out into the world. Are we going to go back into the world and everyone's going to be different? Well, so there's a few things that are making us suspicious. We're worried about somebody getting us sick and we're worried about our democracy crumbling and that people around us don't get it or uh, they're so misinformed that they're never going to get it. Yeah, it's all completely terrifying. So, look, you know, the, the idea with oxytocin is... If somebody makes you trust them, then you are more open. You have more oxytocin. You become more trusting. They feel that you're becoming more trusting. They start to have more oxytocin. And it cycles upward from that. You know, more eye contact. If you could hold them or like give them a really great. But, but is everybody going to turn the oxytocin spigot off when they go out? It has been turned off. First of all, you only have oxytocin if you're in that parasympathetic state where right. you're calm, right? Right. So it has been turned off. You know, the, here's the analogy I give of, you know, when you're in fight or flight, which we all are now, right? If your kitchen's on fire, you don't pick up the phone if it's ringing or make a call or, you know, you're, right. you've got a fire and like, where's the fire extinguisher? Or I have to run out of the house. You don't have any social skills. You're not, there's no niceness there. So the more we're in fight or flight and the more we're in the sympathetic mode, the lousier our social skills are, the less we trust, the less oxytocin we have. You know, you don't really have oxytocin when you're in fight or flight. You have adrenaline and cortisol. And this is why we can't sleep. You know, we're biting our nails. We're trying to soothe ourselves orally. You've got this fat around your stomach. It's because we're in fight or flight. It deranges your metabolism. It makes it very hard to sleep. You don't digest your food well. All the things that happen in parasympathetic where you can rest and digest and you can have sex and you can be social. None of those things happen when we're in fight or flight. I just think also, like for me, I, my fear, this is so uh, antithetical to my nature, but my fear is I'm going to go out into the world and with, with this idea of like, the less people in my life now, the better. People are the problem. And I, and I need people in my life on an as-needed basis. Right. Who, everyone who's in my life, why are you in my life? And if I don't have a really good reason, it's, it, it's literally like we're all going to, on, on an emotional level, we're going to go in and we're all going to clean out the closet now. Right. Well, it's like, does this person spark joy or not? No, they have to go. So, yeah, but that's good. I want to say one thing about your ennui at five o'clock in the evening. And that yes. is if you ever have a morning that you can get out and go see a sunrise, it is the antidote to that ennui. 
that if you happen to be around for dawn and sunrise, you will have a little more hope. Um, and, you know, don't bring your phone. Don't don't like no news. Have like an hour of nature, you know? No, no, I turn my phone off a lot. I've been doing much better with my phone. Well, listen, I think I think if you read me correctly, I'm not quite sure, but you are a professional listener. <laughs> that what I want is I want to take some pharmaceuticals with you <laughs> and we're going to paddle out into the mist together. Okay. And we're going to just open ourselves up to whatever the universe is telling us. I mean, I'm being silly, but it's like... Well, it's soothing, though. It's like hydrotherapy, you know, just listening, you know, first of all, even just the salt air, even just smelling the salt air is good for your brain. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime, you know, you need to talk to a shrink, you come call me. I'm going to get in touch with you. Okay. <laughs> Psychiatrist Julie Holland has a private practice in New York City. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.